0: Listen to this. Slay the wicked, O God. Pour out your rage on them and let your burning anger overtake them. Make their fortification desolate. Let them be erased from the book of life and not be recorded with the righteous. As for the wicked man, let his days be few. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children wander as beggars, searching for food, far from their demolished homes. Let the line of his descendants be cut off. Let their sins always remain before the Lord, and let him remove all memory of them from the earth. Those are words from the Bible. Those are selected verses from a few of the Psalms that were written by King David. We call them imprecatory Psalms. And depending on who you ask, scholars will tell you there's somewhere between 15 to 17 of these unique psalms that are in the entire collection of the book of Psalms that are categorized in this way as imprecatory. Now, what does that word mean? It's the act of invoking or calling down a curse or judgment upon another. That's exactly what you heard David doing there in those verses. Pour out your judgment, erase their names, cut them off from the earth. Now, as we hear that, that type of language, it shocks our senses just a bit, doesn't it? We are not used to hearing those words, but that was not unusual in the ancient Near East in David's day, not at all. In fact, most ancient treaties in that day that were entered into between kings or between nations, and we've dug dug up a lot of them, always have within them a stipulation about curses and punishments if a party were to violate that treaty. So this was normal in that time. Guess what? We even see this in the Torah, in the Bibles that you have on your lap and in, on your phone there. If you've ever read Deuteronomy 28, you know that when you get to that point, you come to this important section of the law that's usually titled blessings and what? And curses. And in that chapter, Yahweh first of all promises great prosperity upon the land and great blessing upon the people if they would just remain faithful and not chase after foreign gods. But then he also promises to bring curses upon his own people if they're unfaithful to the covenant that he had established with them. Curses on their cities, curses on their country, curses on their food supply, curses on their children, their livestock, and promises that if they become unfaithful that God will send invading armies who will overtake them and send them into exile. And by the way, we know that God made good on that promise, didn't he? After repeated bouts of idolatry and wickedness on the part of the kings and the people, and even after Yahweh was gracious by sending prophet after prophet to his people to say, Repent and turn around and come back to Yahweh, they stubbornly refused. And so God sent first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, and both Israel and Judah were destroyed and they were sent into exile. Who do they have to blame? Themselves, they had been warned in the blessings and curses section of their own law. So as we dip our toes into this concept of imprecatory prayers this morning, I want you to think about that structure, that framework as a model for how we should view both what David prays for and how that bridges over into our time today. So grab your Bibles. We are looking at Psalm 35. Uh Uh-oh. Wait. Did I go one too far? There, Wait. Wait. Help me out. 35. Boom. Psalm 35, an imprecatory psalm. So here's what I want to accomplish this morning. We're going to look at two psalms, as you just saw on the screen. (laughs) First, we're going to look at David's imprecatory statements in this one, Psalm 35. And then we are going to go over to Psalm 37, where we are going to hear an older and wiser David as he reflects on how a believer ought to live when it appears that evildoers are beginning to get the upper hand. How do we live when that happens? Now, neither of these psalms are difficult to exegete. The language is straightforward and very clear, very easy to understand. All we're going to do this morning is sort of read them together. I'll make some comments as we go along. But what we need to do is try to slip on David's sandals and to get into his mindset in that day. But we will then also talk about how we as New Covenant believers how we should think about imprecatory prayers and whether they are appropriate in our life, especially in light of the fact that Jesus said what? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So how do we square that? We'll get to that. Look, let's look at Psalm 35. This psalm is titled what? Simply a Psalm of David, which means it doesn't give us a historical background, so there's no story to go to in 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel or anything like that. Uh, Scholars have looked at this and tried to find a period of time and say this must be what David is talking about, but we cannot be for sure. There's a couple possibilities, but we just aren't told. What we do know from the internal evidence of this psalm is that David's enemies are plotting against him. They aim to take him down. That much is obvious, and that becomes the focus of his prayers before Yahweh. Psalm 35, verse 1 says, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of buckler and shield and rise up for my help. Draw also the spear and the battle axe to meet those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. So, right out of the gate, we see what we we talked about in the very first uh, message in the series, the introduction, we talked about Hebrew parallelism, right? In poetic form. How David David makes the same request, but he does it in multiple different ways, using different images and terms each time. And and again, you may say, well, why would would you do this? Why repeat himself? It's because this was written as a poem to be sung in the congregation. So the first request here comes in a legal sense and the second in a military sense. That word content in the Hebrew is a legal term. We see it used by the prophets all the time. And essentially what it means is litigate against my enemies, O Lord. Prove them guilty before you in the court of law. And then you see the military term fight. Lord, take up your armor and fight these people that are coming against me. And you see there, it's interesting, both defensive and offensive weapons. First, two kinds of shields are mentioned. Both are defensive. First, the typical shield in that day was a large shield that would cover a soldier's entire body so he could prevent attacks from the air, from arrows. But then the buckler is the much smaller, rounder shield that a a more mobile or quicker soldier would use to parry an an assault from a, a spear or something, but would allow him to move quickly on the battlefield. So both the large shield and the smaller shield. But then notice David also prays that the Lord would pick up attacking weapons as well. And what an image it is of of if you can think of Yahweh in terms of a physical form with a, a pike or a spear in one hand that would, that would allow him to keep people far away, but also a battle axe to strike at his enemies. Amazing, right? So David basically says, Lord, intercept my enemies and fight off those who pursue me. Now, what is his purpose in the request? Notice it's not just physical, but it's spiritual too. Look at the last phrase in verse 3. David wants assurance that the Lord is with him. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. So it's physical and spiritual, and that's likely an abbreviation of of the covenant name, I am. Right? I am Yahweh, your salvation. That's precisely what David wants to hear. And we've already seen this multiple times in this preaching series, this idea that David cries out to God often, asking God, Asking, Lord, are you there? Are you present? Are you hearing me? I need you. And he has a great need here. He wants assurance that the Lord is with him. And so his greatest desire in this, yes, there's the physical side of it, but the greatest desire is to have the Spirit of God speak to his heart and say, Fear not, I am with you. I am there. And I think we all understand that, right? When we're going through a storm in life in the midst of a trial, that's what we want to know that we're not alone in this. And yeah, it's great that we have physical people with us, but we want to know that God is there, that he is our defender and our deliverer. And then listen, there's nothing more encouraging that drives you forward and gives you strength to to survive another day day, than to know that God is with you and that he is your salvation. Because that means your future is secure. So that's what David is looking for. Now look at verse 4. This is where it gets obviously imprecatory. Verse 4. Let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. So he's calling down curses now. Let those be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. So you have to understand what David's saying. Lord, pour out your judgment on these men because by seeking my destruction, Lord, they're actually opposing you. Take your vengeance, Lord. Let them be ashamed and dishonored and humiliated because they've plotted against your anointed one. And then David gets eschatological in verses 5 and 6. Let them be like chaff before the wind. Does that sound familiar? It's the same language that John the Baptist will later use when he talks about God having a winnowing fork that he, he operates on a threshing floor where he separates the wheat from the chaff and he takes his precious wheat and he gathers it into the barn. But the chaff is thrown where? Into the unquenchable fire. Let these men, these enemies, be like chaff. With the angel of the Lord, he says, driving them on. Verse 6, let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. So you get this picture of the angel of the Lord goes out to fight and he pushes them back. And as they try to retreat, the way gets dark and slippery and the angel of the Lord continues to pursue them. That's what David wants. And as we saw last Sunday, when when he invokes the angel of the Lord, we don't know how much David knew about this, but this this is the pre-incarnate Christ who he is calling upon here. The one who drives the enemy to death and disaster and follows them all the way to the abyss of Hades. This is wild language, isn't it? Now it raises the question, is David justified in asking God to intervene in this way? Does he have the right to do this? Well, look at verse 7. He affirms that he is innocent of any wrongdoing. Verse 7 says, For without cause they, my enemies, hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my soul. So for emphasis, he says it twice. He's confident that these men are coming against him without just cause. So what he says is, Lord, you see this. This is an injustice. And the fact that it's an injustice, that serves as the basis, the foundation for why David feels justified in laying out these imprecatory prayers. Because he knows that God is a God of justice. He says, this is wrong. For no valid reason. His enemies are scheming. They're, they're hiding this net. They're digging a pit. What they want to do is trap me and catch me and destroy me. Perhaps that reminds you of someone else. Someone who would come later along who's called the son of David according to the flesh. In John 15, we hear Jesus himself referring to the Psalms of David when he declares, they, the religious leaders of Israel, have hated me without cause. So you have David, the forerunner of the Messiah, then the Messiah himself quoting here to say, yes, they've hated me without cause. So God is obviously concerned with this type of injustice. Drop down to verse 12 now. Over the next five verses, we're going to hear David elaborate more on the heartbreaking backdrop of all that's going on in his life. It is heartbreaking. Verse 12, they repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. So Again, the implication is that at some point in their lives together, and this because David knows who's, who these enemies are, he had been a blessing to them in the past. He had done good to them. And is there anything worse than that? This is this is these are traitors to a relationship, traitors to a friendship. If you've been in ministry, served in any way, in any significant amount of time, you know this pain where you try to help somebody, you try to do good to them, you try to serve them, you you bust your tail to go out there and love them, and then at some point they turn around and they attack you. It's one of the most devastating things you can feel because you feel betrayal. Listen now to the extent to which David had tried to love these men who are now trying to harm him. Verse 13, but as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting. My prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. And listen, David says this before the Lord, so he's, he is speaking truth here. I lamented when these men were in a weakened state when they were sick. I lamented for them. I put on sackcloth. I fasted on their behalf. I kept coming back to prayer that Yahweh would bless them. I mourn for them as if they were a friend and a brother. And what have I received in return? Look at verse 15. What have I received? At my stumbling, David says, they rejoiced. And they gathered themselves together. The smiters, or those who strike at me, whom I did not know, gathered together against me. They they slandered me without ceasing. Like godless jesters at a feast, they gnashed at me with their teeth. Wow, what language. This is painful stuff. Some of you know this pain. I know I do. When these people were struggling, David was there for them. But when David was in need, they celebrated his downfall. They celebrated his crisis. They were happy about it. So what this is is a picture like a mob mentality. It's it's, it's when... When a group of people sees vulnerability in somebody who once was above them, and now they see that the king is vulnerable, what do they do? They gather together and they go, this is our opportunity to tear him down. This is our opportunity to take shots at him. And again, does this not remind you of Jesus? This rabbi who had done nothing but bless people, who had gone around teaching and healing and showing compassion to all, But then once he was arrested by the Romans and there was vulnerability and an appearance of weakness, what did the mob do? They banded together and said, crucify it. So you again see this foreshadowing in David's life that will come true later in the Messiah's life. Drop down to verse 22 now. David asks God for justice. He says, you've seen it, O Lord. You've seen it. Do not keep silent. O Lord, do not be far from me. Stir up yourself and awake to my right and to my cause, my God and my Lord. Judge me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and do not let them rejoice over me. So, he, again, this is an appeal to justice. Lord, you see everything. You know everything. You see the motivation of my heart, and you see the motivations of their hearts. So judge between us. Judge between us. Come to my aid and vindicate me, Lord, and do not let your enemies, your enemies win. Do not let them. So before we now turn over to Psalm 37, let's let's talk a little bit more in general about these types of prayers, imprecatory prayers. How should we think about these? Well, historically, Christians have thought a number of ways about some of this language that we read here. There are those who are just embarrassed by it and they don't want to talk about it because they don't want to have to defend some of the language. We've been so conditioned in the modern day church to just do nothing but talk about grace and love, but never about wrath and judgment. And so uh, so they're embarrassed of it, don't want to talk about it. There's others that will say, well, you know what? Look, it was fine for David's day in that context. It's just not really an example for us today. And then there's the extreme position. Some have gone so far as to say, well, look, I believe that Psalms is generally an inspired book, but these portions, no. These don't come from God. These come from man. In fact, one highly respected British scholar once wrote this. He said, These are a part of the life of the soul, which is brought before God in worship and prayer. He says, They're natural and spontaneous, but not always pure and good. These Psalms are not the oracles of God. Yikes. Now, obviously, that is a bridge way, way too far, questioning the canon, questioning the inspiration of the book of Psalms. And here's the thing. If you're going to dismiss these statements from David, you're also going to have to deal with a whole number of statements that were made by Jesus himself and by the apostles. You can't have two standards. You can't say, well, imprecatory statements in the Old Testament don't like them. New Testament, absolutely. Now, you're saying, Jeff, wait, hold on. Are you saying that there's imprecatory statements in the New Testament? Absolutely there is. Absolutely. And of course there is. We would expect it, right? Because nothing changes about God's standard or who God is between the Old and New Testaments. He's immutable. He doesn't change. His standards don't change. So what you see in the Old Testament, you also expect to see in the New. So let me give you a sample of imprecatory language in the New Testament. We can start with Paul. Paul's really good at this. Galatians 1 says, If we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be anathema, accursed, right? cast into hell. Or in 1 Corinthians 16, If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. One of the most clear examples of this comes from 2 Thessalonians 1. Listen to what Paul says. (laughs) He says, It is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Let me say that again. It is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Wow. That's strong language, isn't it? Are we embarrassed of that? I hope not. I hope we're not going to throw that out and say, ah, you know, I like most of what Paul wrote, but not so much that. I mean, there's the entire vision of, of, that John has of Revelation 19. And I'll just give you a portion. He, the returning Christ, is clothed with a robe dipped in what? In blood. Ooh. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Oh, I don't want to see that. And with it, he strikes down the nations and he rules them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Oh, and how about from the mouth of Jesus himself? Jesus himself, the very son of God and the angel of the Lord, says this in Luke 10. Woe to you, Chorazin, an entire city. Woe to you, Bethsaida, another city. It will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, which were Gentile cities, in the judgment than it is for you. And you, Capernaum, another city. You will not be exalted to heaven, will you? No, you will be brought down to Hades. Precatory language. And speaking of woes, we have almost all of Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, and you do not enter yourselves. Woe to you, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, blind guides! You testify against yourselves that you're sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you ex- escape the sentence of hell? Upon you will fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murder between the temple and the altar. Ouch. All in precatory language from the Lord himself. As one New Testament scholar has pointed out, the New Testament appears not in the least embarrassed by the Old Testament imprecations, and that's true. So let's go back to David now, and let's let's make some observations. Now that we know we have to accept these things, we can't just toss them out because they don't feel good, let's go back and make some general observations. The first thing you have to know about all the imprecatory language is that we shouldn't mistake David's words as just emotionally uncontrolled outbursts, which is often how they're, they're sort of framed. Oh, David's having a temper tantrum. You know, he's just exploding in anger. No, these are born out of an understanding of who Yahweh is and what Yahweh hates. And, of course, carried along by divine inspiration. So we got to get that right. Second, they're also not written in the form of personal vengeance. And this is what, again, another claim that's often made. That David is somehow asking for God's permission to go out and start slapping people around. God, give me permission to take my weapon and just start slaughtering people. That is not what David is asking for. What is David asking for God to rise up and act? Not himself. He wants God to rise up and act. He wants God to deal justly according to his law that he would contend with in fighting against those who oppose him, who oppose his kingdom, who oppose his land and his people and his king. True? True. So David's passion is for the triumph of divine justice. This is not about the satisfaction of his personal vendettas with people. We've got to know that. It's very, very important. All of these imprecatory statements in both the Old and New Testaments emphasize God's holiness and his justice and his hatred for evil. So really what they are is we're simply, David is simply asking God to do what he's promised to do, which is to judge wickedness and to judge evil. The third thing to know here is that none of these imprecatory calls are aimed at people with also not adding the repentance piece. This is so important. In other words, the call for divine judgment lasts only as long as these people persist in their rebellion. The hand of repentance is always held out. God will turn away if you would simply bow your knee and repent. And that's always held out. So keep in mind, that when David lays out these imprecatory prayers, he's not dealing with small or momentary resistance. What David is describing is long-term, persistent, hardened defiance. And so just as God moved to judge Israel and then Judah, there does come a time when the wickedness of his enemies rises to such a level that the door of redemption is shut and there's only one thing left to pray for, and that is wrath and judgment. And that's a harsh reality. Now, how do we square that with what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount? This is really the question for New Testament believers, and we struggle with this. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for them. How do we square this? Well, here's the short answer, and then I'll try to elaborate. The short answer is that we are able to do and ask multiple things that are within God's will at the same time, and to hold those things in tension. Got really quiet in here. Of course we're to love our enemies. Jesus could not have been clearer. we got to love our enemies. That means we do good to them in every way that we can, in a practical sense. We treat them with kindness. We serve them in any way we can. But most of all, we pray for them. Most of all, we pray that they would see Christ, that they would repent of their sins, and that they would turn to him and be saved. That's the best way we can love people. But there's the practical aspect as well. People that hate us, we still need to serve them. We still need to be kind to them, to return kindness for evil. That's got to be our heart first. Remember, every time, every time we look at an enemy who, is, who, who we look at and we go, oh, this person's so lost. Remember, we were once there, right? We were once in their position. So how dare we judge them from afar and say, well, I can't love them because they're lost. That was us once. And that gets reinforced over and over again. So even the most wicked person in our lives, we want to ask the Lord that he would open their eyes to see him, that he would do a work in their heart to bring about repentance and faith. And to that end, then we live our lives before them, even if they're mean and nasty towards us. We live our lives before them as ambassadors for the gospel. All those things Jesus tells us, and it's all very clear. Now, whether they're saved or condemned is not up to us. Right? Wholly up to God, entirely up to Him. And that means that we have a difficult truth that we have to embrace if we want to stay within God's will. Here it is. While loving them in every possible way, while loving them in every possible way, we can also pray that if they stubbornly refuse to bow their knee to Christ, that God would ultimately judge them for that rebellion. Because He's glorified in both cases. If he saves that person by his mercy or if he judges them in his justice, he is glorified. So for us, there is a kind of righteous hatred that we have to have for people who are hostile to God, who are morally corrupt. And that, that hatred coexists at the same time with our love and compassion for them and our desire to see them get saved. And we have to be able to hold those things in tension because both of them are true. We cry out, Lord, save those who are lost. But we also cry out, pour out your wrath upon evil. We hold them in tension. But here's the thing now. we got to make sure that we don't confuse our role with God's role because vengeance is not our role. That's really important because what, that's what we do, right? We, those of us, look... We all, none of us gets this right. We err on the side of mercy or on the side of justice. For you justice seekers, I'm one of them. We have to be really careful here. It's not our job to take vengeance. It's not. Even if our enemies persecute us, we're to strive to respond in love. It's that whole turn the other cheek thing. If cruel words or, or slander is launched against you, we don't take vengeance for that we turn the other cheek and as much as it depends on us we seek peace we seek to, to, to drop the level of that conflict and to bring, to bring resolution to it as, as hard as it may be and it's hard for a guy like me because I struggle with this we cannot retaliate because Jesus didn't retaliate he's our example Peter talks about it Peter says while being reviled Jesus did not revile in return while suffering he uttered no threats but listen to this now he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. That's got to be our posture. That's what we're to do. We entrust ourselves to the one who will judge all things someday, who will in the end vindicate us. In the moment, we don't take vengeance. We don't retaliate. And the hope in this, this is actually part of God's plan. The hope is when our enemies spit venom at us and receive good from us in return, Rather, you know, we, we can choose not to counterattack. When that happens, it surprises them and it shames them because they're expecting you to fight back. They're expecting you to retaliate. So sometimes goodness infused with the power of God's grace can open up their eyes and they go, oh, that's what divine love is. Oh, that's what a real Christian is supposed to be like. I spit venom at them and they, they gave me kindness in return because that's supernatural, right? This is what Paul meant in Romans 12 when he said, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. You will surprise and you will shame him. And God can use both surprise and shame to draw his heart to himself. But it's our responsibility to be faithful in those situations to say, I'm not going to retaliate. Ooh, it's hard, isn't it? <laughs> can we be honest? It's hard. Like, oh, you punch me? I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm ready to you know, counterpunch, right? No, we don't retaliate. This is a lesson I continue to learn. That's my wife. <laughs> Each and every month and year of my life. Because, you know, I, I like a good fight. But we can't do it as Christians. We cannot do it. So, okay, so let me come back to the question. Does that mean we, we can pray in precatory prayers or we should not do it? Let me get really practical about this. Let me, let me give you two scenarios, a non-personal scenario and a personal scenario. Let's start with the non-personal, where you know of somebody or a group of people, but you don't personally have a relationship with them. For example, think about our wicked government. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Do we need to pray for them? Yeah, we're commanded, commanded in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for our leaders. We should pray for them, that they would act wisely and act justly and turn away from their corruption and greed. That should be a regular prayer verse. Can we also ask God to remove them from office because of their wickedness? Absolutely. Absolutely we can. Provided we're sure there's just cause for that. We know of their wickedness. We know that they should be removed. In fact, I I would say biblical worldview tells us that wherever we see injustice, we should address that. And we can do that in prayer, right? We should oppose evil and injustice wherever we see it. But as we do that, because this is where we get tripped up, because we like politics and we like the drama. As we do that, we need to stay balanced. We can't let that macro picture of evil that's all around us take us away from our personal mission, which is more important, which is in the relationships that we have. To get swept up by, look. There's evil everywhere, and it's not going away because of your prayers. We can still pray to that end, but listen, it's not going away until until Christ returns. So don't get swept up by all that stuff and say, this is now my mission in life to pray against every government leader. And then lose your focus on what you're really supposed to be doing. And that's the personal realm. So let's talk about that. What do we do when we're up against an evil person that we really do know and have personal relationship with. Can we pray imprecatory prayers against that person? The answer is, maybe. (laughs) With great caution and with great wisdom. Be really careful about this. First of all, it should be a very rare thing in our lives that we come into that type of confrontation with evil and we need to pray that God would contend with them. That should be rare. Because I know, again, you always have to guard against getting out of balance because as soon as I say that, there's going to be somebody who hears this on the Internet or something that goes, this is my new mission in life, to run around praying these prayers against everybody I know. Don't do that. <laughs> this should be a very rare thing. Secondly, it has to be done with the right attitude, with humility, and surrender to the will of God. And third, listen, if you're ever going to ask God to judge another sinner what's the first thing you need to look at? (laughs) Look at your own house. Look in the mirror. See if there's a giant log coming out of your eye. Right? Make sure, like David, that as far as it depends on you, that you're innocent in this conflict that you were praying about. That this person is coming against you in an evil way without cause. And that you don't have a part in that. And still, still, if you meet all those conditions, if you decide, I'm going to pray imprecatory prayers against somebody, make, for, make sure that first and foremost, you have been and will continue to pray that God would save them. Because that's the bigger issue. Make sense? Okay. Do you notice how many caveats I put in that? Right? I mean, it's, it's a hard thing. It's, again, there's, it's holding on to attention here recognizing what we're supposed to... Okay, one last comment to make on this, and this is really important, and then I, I, I swear I'm going to move on. But this is really important. Remember, as you read the imprecatory Psalms, who the author is here. This is, this is King David. David plays a very unique role in biblical theology and biblical history. He is not just your average, everyday worshiper. He is God's anointed king of God's people, Israel. Okay. In that Old Testament context, some of you guys know this. The king was a representative of the whole nation. And so think about this. David is a representative of Yahweh on the earth. That makes him kind of important. Probably a little more important than us. Okay. He's got Yahweh's representative on the earth. So that means an attack against David, in effect, was an attack against Yahweh, was an attack against the land, was an attack against the people and and against the entire nation. The reason I bring that up is in comparing any situation that we might find ourselves in, if we compare it to his, it's going to be a stretch. It's going to be a stretch. That's not to say that someday we might not come into very real confrontation with evil where we can pray in precatory prayers. But listen, this is important. David's position and role in biblical history gives him Unique permission to pray as he does. And so I I say that again, just so that you guard against running around flippantly and going, I'm going to pray these prayers because David did. You're in a different situation. Does that make sense? Okay, that was just another caveat. So many of them. Okay, with all that said, now, now, let me share with you some wisdom from David in his later years. Now we get to go to Psalm 37. Oh, We had a mountain there for a second. Okay, turn over to Psalm 37. Listen, we don't even have to go deeply into this because the text is so clear, you're just going to catch it by reading the words of Scripture. By the way, in verse 25, if you look really quickly at it, David says, I've been young, but now I'm old. Super relatable. So these are reflections of a man who's seen a whole lot of things. And that's what makes this a wisdom song. Okay, so how we live this stuff out requires wisdom. So look at his imperatives in verses 1 and 2. Super practical. He says, do not fret because of evildoers. Now, this is the guy that was in precatory prayers, Lord, fight for me. And I was like, look, don't sweat this. It's really an interesting, you know, bifurcation here, right? He says, do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious towards wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Now, that word fret in the Hebrew is very interesting. It refers to something that burns, something that kindles heat. So basically, advice is don't get all overheated about every little evil thing that you see. Don't get all worked up about this and get sucked into the vortex of these evil, wicked people. They can do that, right? If, guys, if, you, if all you do all day is spend time reading the news or on Twitter, you're going to get sucked into the vortex of evil, and it's going to distract you. Don't get sucked into it. Keep things in perspective. Those who oppose God are destined to wither like the grass in the front of your house or that herb garden that you have. It all dies. Again, relatable. <laughs> and But he says, don't be envious of the wicked because, look, he's. He's like, "I know, you look at these these wicked people and from the outside you're like, "Man, they have so much. They look like they're having a blast." And we can get envious of that, right? Look, they're wealthier than us, they got more stuff, they got more social media followers than me. But a biblical worldview tells you that their prosperity is like a mist that comes and disappears. It's only temporary. So test all things by the big picture of eternity. What will the wicked have when they're gone? And if you need perspective on this, go find a cemetery and wander around. Seriously, it's sobering. Look at the names on the headstones, look at the dates, and then feel the silence. The wicked take nothing with them. So don't be envious of them from what you see on the outside. And instead of fretting or envying, do what the Lord prescribes in verse 3 Trust in the Lord and do good dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. You want a verse to tape to your to your mirror at home? This is a great one. So cuz it's so simple and practical. Trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the place that God has you and cultivate faithfulness. As you navigate through this world and you see all this evil going on around us. And yes, sometimes they look so happy and prosperous. David says, look, as an old man, let me tell you, don't get frustrated by it. Don't get irritated by it. Don't get angry about it. Don't allow the enemy to drag you into their sin. Instead, trust what God says about them and about you and about what eternity holds. Rest in those truths. Find peace in those truths. And then go out and do good in all the days that you're given. Serve the Lord. Serve others. Strive to live a simple, quiet, faithful life that gives testimony to the greatness of God. Listen, not all of us, we don't all have to be world changers. Sometimes we're taught this in the church, like we all got to go out there and change the world. Sometimes it's just living a simple, quiet life of faithfulness in the place that God has planted you. Dwell in the land. And then this, this phrase, cultivate faithfulness. It's like a garden. I've got a garden and every day I go out and I tend it. Why? Because I'm trying to grow in all the spiritual fruits. So dwell on the land. And then work that garden. All that spiritual fruit. It, it, it's so simple, right? But, it, but really is, I mean, this is the goal of our lives as believers. This simplicity, this quietness, this faithfulness, this living together as a body. This is what our calling is. This is God's will for our lives. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful if you'll receive it. Then drop down to verse 7, you get more of it. Rest in the Lord, David says. Remember, this is an old guy. He's looking back at life and he's like, look, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way or because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil doing." So interesting. Waiting patiently is one of the hardest things right because again we see all these things and we're like I wish I had that. Oh, I know God promises me this great inheritance, but I want it now. That's what we say cuz we don't want to wait patiently. How many guys have ever gone to the emergency room at Henry Mayo? Okay, you all know what I'm about to share then. Waiting is awful. It's I mean, I wrote these things down like cuz this every time I think about waiting, I think about that emergency room. It's awful. It's the worst. First of all, you have no idea how long it's gonna take. You have no idea. Second, you have no control over what's going on. Third, you can't see behind those double doors where all the doctors and nurses are going in out of. And fourth, all kinds of people are going in before you and you don't know why. You're like, I'm much sicker than them. What's going on here? And, and it's sort of like life. There's times when you're like, I don't have control over this. I don't really, I can't see all the things I wish I could see. And so what does God say? Trust me and be patient. Rest in my promises. There's so many comparisons there. This is all about submitting to God's will and plan and refusing to give in to frustration and irritation and anger. Three times David says, don't get overheated about this. Don't fret. I know you use all this wickedness. I see it too. Don't let it get under your skin because he says, look, if you let it get under your skin and you spend all your time worrying about the evil in the world, he says, look, you're going to end up being led into sin yourself. He warns us about this. It will end in your evil doing if you get so wrapped up in it. So when we see things getting worse, we have to make a conscious choice to shift our focus. If you feel yourself getting overheated, turn away from the news of the world. Turn away from your social media. Focus on the Lord. Focus on on cultivating greater trust and cultivating greater obedience and cultivating greater humility and cultivating that impossible thing, patience. It can be done. And that's what verses 9 through 13 focus on, patience. Look what God promises. Look, he says, evildoers will be cut off, but for those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Do you believe it? Do you believe the promises? Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. You'll look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. That's what I mean by going to a cemetery. You'll see it. That person might have been very important in life. He or she died, and the world just kept moving on. You can look for them, but they will not be found. Verse 11, but the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for the Lord sees his day coming. That's the promise. By the way, that verse 11 there, scholars believe that's what Jesus grabbed onto in his third beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek or the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Right? The world says the opposite, but David and Jesus agree. It's the meek and the righteous who will inherit the promises. You've got to believe that. As you're looking around at the world and see all this evil, you've got to believe that promise. I love this quote from Spurgeon. He says this. He says, I have frequently remarked to you that although the wolf is very strong and very fierce and the sheep is very weak and very timid, Yet the day will come when the last wolf will be dead and then the sheep shall cover the plains and feed upon the hills. Weak as the righteous often are, they shall inherit the land and the wicked shall be cut off from the earth. That's the promise. So let me close with this. I'm going to go back up to verse four now because you know I skipped right past it. Everybody loves this beautiful gem in verse four. Delight yourself in the Lord And he will give you the desires of your heart. Listen, the the wicked are going to plot and they're going to scheme and they're going to gnash their teeth at us. That is a given in a fallen world. And yes, at times, this journey we're on is going to be painful and we're going to suffer. And we could spend all of our time worrying and being irritated and wrestling with anger. And we could spend all of our time lifting up in precatory prayers against everybody. Or we can delight ourselves in the Lord. Right? We're better off doing the simple things that David recommends here in Psalm 37. Trusting in the promises of God. Trusting that he will judge the wicked in his timing. Learning to be patient and delighting in him. What does it mean to delight in something? Think about that for a second. We all know what it means because we've all delighted in many things in our years on the earth. So think for you, what does it mean to delight? When you started dating somebody, you delighted in that person. You were excited about it. It gave you joy and pleasure. When, when a young mom holds her baby for the first time, she delights in that child. She's been waiting and it gives her great joy and pleasure. If you're happily married, you delight to spend time with your spouse. It's, it's your favorite thing to do. It's delightful. I know that each day I delight in watching my grandkids run around the house. You know, it's just it's just my delight. It gives me joy and pleasure. Some of you just delight in the simpler things, you know. When uh, when the Dodgers win, or the Bruins win, right? Oh, man. Right. I had a delight in that. I was I was delightful last night when I saw the score. Right. Or or when you when you're eating your favorite food, or you're you know watching your favorite movie or something. That to delight in something. Guys, listen, the way you feel about that, those things, that joy and pleasure you get, that should be found in the Lord as well. You should have that same feeling about the Lord. And if you don't, there's a disconnect there. And you should reach out to somebody and say, I may need some help to understand this better. Maybe I need some discipleship. If you're not delighting in him, there is a disconnect. But if we find that delight in him, look what we have in this great promise here in verse 4, that God will give you the desires of your heart. Anybody want the desires of their heart? Anybody? Anybody not want that? No, I don't want that. Of course we want that. Well, what does it mean? It means that as we delight in him, our desires will begin to line up with his desires for us. And that is the sweetest spot that you can live in. I'm telling you. I know you're like, no, but I want this. No, I'm telling you the sweetest spot in life is when you begin to have affection and desire for the same things that God wants you to desire. That's the sweet spot. So delight yourself in God in every way, with your mind, with your emotions, in your work, in your worship, in your relationships, in your service to others. And if you'll do that, see if all the evil in this world begins to slowly dissipate. See if it just doesn't become smaller in your life, in your daily life, as you delight more in the Lord. It's one of the great remedies for the struggles we're all dealing with today because there is so much chaos in our world. Make a choice to delight in God, to trust His promises, and to wait patiently on him amen Amen. let's bow our heads if you agree with what i'm about to pray just make it personal to yourself lord these are challenging things for us because we do see so much going on in our world that causes us distress and there's so many things we could worry about but lord i pray for myself that you would help me to see things in a new light Help me to see, Lord, that you are in control, that you are sovereign, that you have a plan and you have perfect timing. And Lord, I don't have to run around trying to fix everything and and pray prayers down upon people. I can simply rest in you and rest in your promises. Lord, help us to have the right focus in these days that we live. And help us to focus, Lord, on the mission that you've given us here to to dwell in this land that you've put us in, to cultivate faithfulness, both in our individual lives and as a church body. Strengthen us, Lord, to do the things that are most effective for the kingdom and not to be dragged away into the vortex of all kinds of distractions such that we don't do the things that you most want for us. And Lord, help us most of all just just to... just to be with you, to love abiding with you, to delight in that relationship. And Lord, may you produce great fruit through our lives by your spirit as we seek to delight in you. Draw us close to yourself, God. We thank you for our time in the word this morning. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen.